Wicked. Thank you. <coughs> Excellent. Cool. I just thought I'd start. Um, so it's a real privilege to like be here today to um, preach to you. I'm just really grateful to you as a church, and um, also like to God, really totally has brought me here today, and um, really grateful for that. Anyway, so let's start. I'm going to talk about salvation and redemption today. These are two uh, quite long words and key words to understanding uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, who we've been worshipping this evening. So, uh, I'd like to start just by saying that we live in a, a world where one week Gordon Brown is the saviour of the economy, and the next week he isn't. Where... One month, Alan Shearer is a saviour of Newcastle FC, and the next month they get relegated. And one year, Chris Moyles is a saviour of Radio 1, and the next year he's lost, what, 40,000 listeners? I think our culture is pretty confused about saviours. And this is not a personal attack on any of those guys, in fact... I actually quite like all of them. But, yeah, I just think we're confused um, as a nation about salvation. And yet, I think it's really clear that there's something in us that is really yearning for a saviour. If you look at um, the most popular books, films, um, TV programmes, they all um, have some kind of theme of salvation. If you think about uh, blockbusters, we've got Superman, Spider-Man, Wolverine... Uh, the Dark Knight, um, even on TV, uh, perhaps less sort of superheroes, but House, uh, McNulty and The Wire, um, and bigger and bigger grand scale, look at um, what happened with Barack Obama. We're just so desperate for a saviour. Even uh, women are looking for a saviour, and um, I'm sure you all know at least one or two who are waiting for Mr. Darcy. There's, in our, across the world, we have, uh, we have wars, we have injustice, there's addiction, depression, famine, natural disasters, climate change. All creation groans. Listen to it. Yet, as Christians, as Matt Fox earlier said tonight, we proclaim that Christ is our saviour. What does that mean? Well, can I get a first slide up? In Luke 24, 27, the resurrected Jesus Christ is on a bit of a road trip with a couple of guys to Emmaus. And he says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So we're going to go all the way back to the second book of the Bible, to Exodus, to the story of Moses, and we're going to look at um, how this points us to Christ and his salvation. Now, a quick recap on where we're at in the story. It's 400 years since Joseph and his dream coat, and the Israelites, the people of God, God's chosen people, are enslaved and in, in an oppressive um, regime. There's a pharaoh and his empire, and he's enslaved them. There are thousands and thousands of Israelites working as slaves for the pharaoh. 
And yet he's getting so uh, fearful about the rapid growth in the number of Israelites um, that he orders all their sons to be slaughtered. And yet we see uh, God's provision over the life of one boy called Moses. And in a great irony, he ends up being raised by the Pharaoh's daughter. Next slide, please. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people, the Hebrews, the Israelites, and he looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way, he looked that And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So he kills him, hides him, pretends no one else has seen it. And yet, obviously, someone must have seen it because the Pharaoh hears about it and he's not happy. And he seeks to kill Moses. Moses then flees to the land of Midian, where he eventually he becomes a shepherd. He marries a woman and has a son. And then uh, he has a very powerful encounter with God, um, who appears in a flame in a burning bush. Um, That's probably a sermon in in itself. And God calls him to lead his people out of Egypt, though he is weak, he's sinful, he's foolish. And Moses keeps coming back to God and he's saying, "Uh, I don't think think I'm good enough. Um, I I can't even speak. how am I supposed to do this? Pick someone else, not me. And yet uh, God really tells him that you're the man for the job. He's chosen this man. And so Moses goes away and he doesn't quite do things as God asked him to. And things actually get worse. They get really bad. And the slaves, they are already uh, working a seven-day week. And we think we've got it bad in London. These guys uh, work seven days Um, And they're making bricks out of straw, obviously, to build some kind of tower or um, some large buildings to to glorify this pharaoh uh, and and the Egyptian gods. And the taskmasters now demand the same amount of bricks every day, uh, but the Israelites have to gather the straw as well. So now the Israelites are really annoyed with Moses because they think this is all his fault. So they get really angry with Moses and... Just the whole situation seems incredibly hopeless. And then we get to today's passage. And we're at Exodus 5.22. It's up here. I'm just going to read some verses if you'd like to turn to Bibles if you have them. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to the people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name... He's done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now, you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of this land. God spoke to Moses, and he said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. 
Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I'll bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. If we look, I don't know if we can just get back to um, verse 22. Moses speaks, and he comes to God. And I think you can really sum this up in just why. Like, it's so classically human. Moses comes to God, and he says, why have things got so bad? Why am I like this? Why, why did you choose me? And in fact, Moses is starting to do exactly the right thing. You see, before, when things were going wrong, he fled to Midian. But now he flees to God. Alec Mortier says, Moses used this time with God to unload all his hang-ups. It's human. It's honest. It's real. This is how we should come to God. Wherever you are at today, just be honest and real with him. And God's response is unusual. You see, he offers promise after promise to Moses, verse by verse. And he begins and ends with this phrase, I am the Lord. Or in the uh, original, it's I am Yahweh. It's, um, it's an incredible name uh, that, that God uses. And this is the, the first time that uh, he uses this. And it comes from the, uh, the Hebrew um, to be. It, it means I am. It means I am who I am. It, or it, it means I will be what I will be. It's just so encompassing. It's like you bring to me all your problems. I am. That's what I say to your problems. That's what I say to the things that you bring to me. I am. I am God. I am what I am. It's like he says that I am enough. And notice what he doesn't say. If it was me and I was talking with Moses, I think I'd be really soft and gentle and really, you know, Moses, you're a good guy. And, and things are going to go really well for you. And uh, you've got lots of really good gifts, Moses. Actually, you're, you're a really special guy. And yet, that's not what God does. You see, the Lord, he didn't tell him to cheer up or brave up. Or to get a grip. He didn't even invite uh, or promise any change in Moses. But rather he just renews his revelation of himself. He says, I am God. And that is enough. And God reminds Moses that he's the same God who appeared to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob. And this would have been loaded with significance to Moses. You see, these are all uh, biblical characters who appeared before Moses. These are the kind of people he would have known about. And God's saying that he's the God of history. He's the God who made a covenant uh, with Abraham. He's made promises to his people and he's sticking to them. You see, Abraham left everything behind 
and he set out on an unknown destination. And Isaac faced the impossible odds of death itself and experienced a God who did indeed provide and whose promises could be trusted. And Jacob discovered the folly of living by his wits when he should have been trusting the promises of God. These are all stories that would have really hit home when God said them to Moses. And then we say that God says he remembers his covenant. And we can kind of think um, that God's like us and that he must have forgotten because now he's remembered. But that's not really what remembered means there. You see, to remember the covenant means that he will act in a way that will be seen by man to be a fulfillment of these promises. So God is making all these promises and he's also saying he's going to fulfill them. He's not, it's not that he's forgotten them, he's remembered them. And then there's this promise, I will redeem you. And this is the kind of word we, uh, a lot as Christians we, we talk about and we talk about and you can kind of forget what it means. Back in uh, the time of Exodus, it would have had three meanings. And it's really important for us to understand what each of these are. In the uh, sort of secular use, it would have been to do with uh, land ownership. So if uh, you had a plot of land and it had fallen into um, sort of alien ownership, so someone else has it, and you wanted um, to get it back, you would redeem it. You would purchase it back. In uh, religious terms... If something was vowed to God, so you, you're committing it to him, but it, perhaps it's something that you can't really give to him, so it's like a house, then what uh, you would do is you would, um, you would make a promise to, to redeem that vow by paying the market value of the house. So if your house is worth £50,000, um, God bless you, and you would, you would pay uh, that as your vow. And within a community... The Redeemer was always the next of kin. It was a relation. There's a relationship there. And it was uh, someone who had the right to avenge a murdered relative. And so we have this idea of buying back, of paying the equivalent price, and of a, a next of kin relationship between the Redeemer and the redeemed. God not only uh, promises to take them out of Egypt, out of slavery, but promises to take them into the promised land. And this is fundamental uh, to understand salvation. You see, we're not just um, saved from something, but we're saved to something else. And uh, God bring, brings us this freedom for a purpose. And it's wonderful. There's this mutual relationship here because God says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. Some uh, theologians actually say this is the kind of language that uh, a groom would use to a bride in the uh, traditional Jewish wedding. So these promises are kind of like, you know, uh, when you're at a wedding and they make a vow and they say, I do or I will. This is the language God is using to people. This is, this is crazy. This is God speaking to humans, um, to mere mortals and saying, we have a relate, we can have a relationship. When you're saved, we have a relationship. And God is faithful. 
next next passage in Exodus um, seven verse six. We see that Moses and his, his brother Aaron, then uh, they did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. So whereas before they were doing things in their own strength, they were uh, doing things not quite how God has asked them, now they're doing them exactly how God wants them. And I think it's, it's so funny because um, the thing that God asked Moses to do the most is to speak. That's all he asked him to do, to speak these words. And yet that was the one thing that Moses said he was weak in. God uses the weak because he's, he's the real strength. And what follows is this long drawn out series of encounters between Moses and the Pharaoh. And um, it's really brutal. It's ugly and it's disgusting. We have um, this series of, of 10 plagues and it includes things like frogs, uh, gnats, flies, boils, um, it's just disgusting. And uh, each time Moses, uh, he comes to um, the Pharaoh and he, he threatens him. He says, the, this plague is coming. You've got to release us. And uh, Pharaoh kind of dithers uh, each time. And then um, he, never, um, he never comes through on it. He, his heart is hardened, it says. And uh, the Israelites remain captive. And that is until the 10th plague the Passover. And again, this is a really important part of the story. God um, tells the Israelites to take a lamb without blemish, without any spots, to kill the lamb and to put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts to their house. Um, Exodus 12, next, that's the one. Um, 12, uh, 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. There's that phrase again. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood I will pass over you, and no plague will befall on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And then this happens. And they leave. Exodus. And then they pass through the Red Sea. You might and probably know this story, um, this tremendous miracle of um, Moses and the Israelites passing through the Red Sea. He opens it up in two. And then um, the armies of Egypt come chasing after them, but they're washed away. And then uh, the people, the people of God, Israelites, they enter the wilderness for many, many years. But their time starts with worship. Exodus 15 verse 2 says, uh, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, I will exalt him. This um, salvation out of Egypt into uh, the wilderness on their way to the promised land, has turned them uh, into a worshipping body of God. The only problem is, and this I find really fascinating, uh, but it's not that surprising. The same chapter, verse 24, things turn sour. Can we change the slide? And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? 
this might just seem like a kind of throwaway verse, but I just want to hang here for a second because these people, we're talking thousands of people saved from this incredible tyrannical um, regime and they're free. They're totally free and they've just been worshipping and yet now they're grumbling about the fact that they might not have some drink. You'd think they would know that God is a God who provides. And yet again, chapter 16, the beginning of chapter 16, 2 to 3, you can look it up later, 17 verse 2, the people are quarreling and they're grumbling about food and water and uh, it starts to become too much for Moses and he, um, he actually brings about this scheme, um, a bit like tens that we have here. Uh, where some people would look after 10 and 50 and 100, just because the people uh, are still struggling to lead uh, a faithful life. And uh, they realize the wilderness is a really tough place to be, um, and they've really struggled to reach the promised land, the one that um, they've been promised to go to. Now we're going to skip forward uh, approximately 1,500 years later, and the, the Israelites are still struggling to remain faithful to God. And we see the rise of uh, a new tyrannical empire, the Roman Empire. And God has, um, we're told, has, he's been silent for 400 years. I mean, some weeks we, we go, oh, I haven't heard from God from this week. <laughs> These guys haven't heard from him for 400 years. You've got Emperor Caesar, um, who's, who's ruling the, the Roman Empire. He was uh, considered the son of God. Uh, He was considered the prince of peace. And uh, one of his kind of propaganda slogans was peace through victory. Uh, The the Romans would um, invade and conquer entire regions. Um, This was a massive uh, empire. And anyone who uh, disagreed with uh, what the things they were doing, the things that uh, they implemented, um, could be crucified. They could be nailed uh, to a cross and left as a symbol that the empire is victorious. Another, uh, interestingly, another favorite propaganda slogan of this empire was Caesar is Lord. Because they've, um, just, they've basically taken uh, this same thing that, that God said, I am Lord, and, and now they're saying uh, Caesar is Lord. So he, he is to be worshipped. He is the ruler of all. And then we get to the Gospel of Matthew. We read at the start of uh, a, a guy named Herod. And uh, we all know the sort of uh, nativity story. Who out of uh, fear for his position, he then orders uh, the firstborn sons to be killed. And uh, like Moses, we see this incredible uh, provision over um, over a baby boy. His name is Jesus. And um, there's just this incredible um, provision for him and his, his mother and, and his father. And um, they escape to Egypt. A co- meanwhile, a cousin of Jesus is preparing the way. He's proclaiming that the Messiah is coming. And uh, years later, when he sees Jesus... He says, um, next passage, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Notice how Jesus comes out of Egypt. Um, John then baptizes him in water. 
And then uh, Jesus spends 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness where he confronts the temptations of the devil. The parallels with Exodus are impossible to ignore. And everywhere Jesus goes, crowds gather to hear him. He heals the sick. He raises the dead. He radically transforms the lives of the rich, the poor, the hungry, adulterous sinners. I recently had a conversation with someone. We were talking about um, sexuality. And um, this person, this friend of mine, she said to me, well, didn't Jesus hang around with, with prostitutes and, and sinners? And I was like, yeah, he did. But what we mustn't forget is how he radically changes lives. And uh, in John 8, Jesus um, is talking to the, the Jews who believed in him. And he says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Interestingly, he later says, I am the truth, the way and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus here is talking about himself. And they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. They're kind of like going, wait a minute, we're not slaves. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. This presents us with a bit of an interesting question. What is sin? Well, Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And sin can be understood um, as the wrong things that we do, primarily against God. This is uh, the classic traditional Christian teaching And uh, you'll have heard this all, I'm sure, at least once. And when we fall short of his glory, that's when we're sinning, when we're doing the wrong things. But I think it's more than that. It's not just the wrong things that we do. You see, I think it's also when we don't do the right things. This is a sin of um, omission. It's when we're not doing the right things. I think it's also when we try to do the right thing, but we're doing it in our own strength. You can see this in the story I talked about in Moses. You see, I think it was totally right for Moses to try and set the Israelites free. That was God's will, and eventually that's what happened. But when he went out and did it in his own strength, and he, uh, he killed the one Egyptian and buried him in the sand, he sinned. I think it's really important for us to think of this, because you can be the nicest guy who does all the right things and yet still not be right with God. There's this uh, Anglican liturgy in the Church of England. They talk, um, they, they all say this together and they say, um, God, we have sinned in thought, in word and in deed. I would add to that in motivation, what motivates us and the implications of this are massive. You see, it basically means that we're all sinners. And all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. We can't 
reach the glory of God. We are all slaves to sin. And Romans 6.23 presents us with a problem because it says the wages of sin is death. So really we should, we should die because of our sin. We need a saviour. We need a redeemer. One who will pay the full price to buy us back. One who will save us from the slavery to sin to something else, which I'll talk about in a minute. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's saying, there's another way. It's me. I am your salvation. I am your redeemer. He's making the, he makes the same promises that, that God made to Moses. And before he's betrayed and he dies on a cross, he celebrates the Passover um, with his disciples. So the passing over, when, when God passed over in Egypt and uh, the blood was on the doorsteps and uh, he, he doesn't um, kill the firstborn um, sons or, or beasts of the Israelites, they celebrate this by taking bread and wine. And then Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Well, that's a bit weird, because they're, they're celebrating the Passover. That's happened. But Jesus is saying, do this in remembrance of me. And if I was a disciple, I think I'd feel a little confused. Because not, not long after, I then see him nailed to one of these Roman Empire cross. And you would think, I thought he was the Messiah. I thought he was going to save us. I thought he would overrule the sin of the world. But now he's dead and he's laying in a tomb. How distraught would you feel? You followed this man and yet now you question everything. And then three days later, his tomb is found empty. And some people say that he's risen from the dead. And we're back on the road to a mouse. And Jesus is with um, two of his followers. They don't recognize him. And it's only when he breaks the bread that they get it. It's revealed to them. He's alive. His body was broken. His blood was shed. But now he's alive. And yet, there were still some disciples that, that doubted this. Uh, famously, there's Doubting Thomas. He now has for eternity his name, <laughs> Doubting Thomas, the poor guy. But he has to feel, physically feel the holes in Jesus' hands. And he does this, John twenty twenty eight. And then, and Jesus asked him, who, who are you? And, and Thomas answered him, my Lord... And my God, he's calling Jesus Lord, Yahweh. He's, he sees that he is the saviour, the one who saves, the one who redeems. And then the, the followers of Jesus, what we call the early church, they go out far and wide into this uh, Roman Empire, around the world, proclaiming Jesus is Lord. In, imagine a country, imagine a country where Everyone says Caesar is Lord, 
and they they bow down and worship him. They give all their money to him. This is a scary regime. And these Christians are going out and they proclaim Jesus is Lord. And we look through the New Testament, through um, the Acts of the Apostles, the letters that they write to their churches, we see this. They must be totally crazy. They're going to get themselves crucified. They must have seen something to make them do this. And throughout all these passages we read in the New Testament, they keep calling us back to salvation redemption. I'm just going to rattle through a few of them and just see what hits you. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Colossians 2, 13-15, And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. Romans 6, 17 to 18. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have been obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. 1 Corinthians 15 55 to 57, quoting one of the earlier prophets, Hosea. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? This is a poem. This is so poetic, and yet it's so powerful. Listen, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't the victory that the Roman Empire had. This is the victory that Christians have. Colossians 1, 13 to 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. You see, we are always saved from something to something else. Here, we, these passages are telling us we're saved from sin for God's kingdom, for eternity with him, for a life with Christ, in Christ, for Christ, built on Christ. It means everything. I know this. I have been saved. I have been redeemed. The blood of the Lamb is on the doorposts of my heart. My sins have been forgiven. When God looks at me, he sees the blood of his son. My sins are forgiven. I am saved. How do we respond to this? We must be aware. We must have a revelation that We are slaves to sin. That's where it starts. Even if you do good things, if you go out every other Sunday, feed the homeless in Camden, if you organize a charity fundraiser, if you spend a month in Latvia 
giving to the poor. And it's not built on Christ. It's not built on his salvation. Then I would say you're being your own saviour. Good works are good. But if they're not done with the right motivation, then you're saving yourself. If you want to receive this salvation, the salvation of Christ, you have to acknowledge that Christ is saviour. And then you join in the celebration. The Passover lamb, as we, as we break the bread and we drink the wine, come and join the celebration. This is good news. You have been saved. The body has been broken for you. The blood has been shed for you. And if you've already received this salvation, if you've known this for weeks, for months, for years, then I urge you to please live like it. You see, um, there's a lot of Christians who receive the salvation from sin and then they get caught in the wilderness and they get caught quarreling and grumbling and moaning. And yet in Isaiah 12, 3, it's our last verse here. Can everyone just say uh, those first two words? All right, okay, let's say it with joy. With joy. Okay, with joy, you have, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. You can enjoy life with Christ. You, it, it will be hard. It will be a struggle, I know, but you can enjoy it. It's allowed. <laughs> I, uh, I've got a friend who became a Christian last year, and it was fantastic. For the first month, he's really going for it, and he's loving Jesus. And then one Sunday, he's at church, and I'm talking to him. I'm like, what's up? And he's like, I wish someone had told me it would be this hard. And it's okay, because I've seen him recently, and he's back all fired up. But I put it to you that we have to fight the good fight. We have to run this race. We have to press on towards the goal. It's a battle. Your life will be tough. You will have suffering. You will have persecution, but you must battle on and, and reach out to the promised land. When Jesus taught us to pray, he said, um, let our Father's kingdom would come, that his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If the average person becomes a Christian around the age of 18 to 25, and the life expectancy in this country is 78, you have approximately... <laughs> 55 to 60 years living a life on earth with Christ, seeing his kingdom come, seeing um, something of the promised land here on earth. Don't wait for heaven. Don't wait to die to spend eternity with Christ. We must keep praying this. We must keep asking for the Holy Spirit, for God to guide us as he builds his church. We must tell the world of his love, his grace to us, his salvation, his redemption, and his promised land. That's it.
I think it'd be really good if we uh, we just grab hold of um, how the uh, Israelites first turned to worship God because of their salvation. We're going to uh, sing some more songs now. We're going to worship him with joy. And uh, we're going to take the bread and wine. We're going to uh, remember Christ's um, blood shed for us, for his body broken for us. And um, if, if, if you feel like um, the Holy Spirit has, has convicted you of sin, you've, you've repented, you acknowledge Christ as Savior, then I welcome you to come and join the celebration. And uh, if, if you're left with, um, with any questions, um, please come and speak to me afterwards or someone uh, that you came with. Don't leave tonight um, without, without being real before God. Thank you.